How many of you have some loose change in your pockets or in your purse? Maybe, maybe a small bill? Not, a, not this kind of bill. A dollar bill, which is kind of my nickname also. Take it out and look at it. On the screen, we see some examples of what I'm going to be talking about today. On every coin that's, that's printed or put out by the U.S. Treasury, there is the American United States uh, motto, in God we trust. So we see it on the dollar bill. We see it on a license plate. We see it on jackets, on clothing. We even see it, if you look on Google, you'll see it on tattoos. In God we trust. Let me add a little bit to that. In God we should trust. That, that, that motto, uh, doing a little research on, on it, has been on our coinage, on our bills for years. I have a silver dollar that's 1888, and it says, in God we trust on it. But it didn't become our national motto until 1956 under the administration of Dwight David Eisenhower. And why did that happen? Because that was a reaction to what was happening in the Soviet Union an atheist country. And so Dwight Eisenhower said, even though everybody is familiar with this motto, it's not, it's not in our hands every day. And so he had it passed that this would become our motto, replacing e pluribus unum, which is also on my silver dollar. Out of many one, which is more important? In God we trust. So we'll continue our uh, series in the book of Proverbs. Uh, and while the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs deal with the subject of the wisdom of God, Tucked away in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, are the, a couple of verses that are probably among the most familiar verses in all of the Bible. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. And if you're like me, you probably learned them from memory as a child, and you could probably quote them faster than I could write them, write them down. Now, some say that these verses address the problem of relying on human wisdom rather than wisdom from above. Certainly, that is true. Others, experts in biblical interpretation, say that these two verses focus on the problem of worry. I'm not qualified to disagree, but what I have observed is that worry is a result of fear. 
And the things that I fear most are the things that I cannot control. And they lay ahead of me in my future. But God knows that and is all ready to step in to rescue me from myself. But what are we to do? Let me even just stop here and say thank you, worship team and Samoa, for the beautiful music, the wonderful words that we sang this morning. I'm getting choked up already. Usually, usually it takes me 20 minutes to get to this point. Uh, but what are we to do, as, as the song said, with the worries that come on us daily, the daily news reports of violence, armed conflicts, persecution, economic uncertainties, graft, inverted crime, uh, cr uh, criminal justice, ruptured and abused families, laws and ordinances that contradict common sense and decency. What are we to do with all that? All cause me to wonder what the future holds, not only for my very limited future, but that of my children and their children. Embedded in all of this is everyone's hope that we will be secure and things will be all right in the future. It's not a sign of neurosis to wonder about the future, nor is it a sin. But there's a huge difference between worrying about what you have no power over and resting in God, God's program for those who he loves and those who love him. With that in mind, let's go back to those familiar truths of today's study Verses filed away in my brain's hard drive, not for use in case of emergency, but for daily application. Can we go on to the next slide? Read with me this, these verses, okay? Trust, everybody, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. We find four verbs in these two verses, four action words that are of special concern to anyone who may want to live a life of social peace and blessing. They are trust, lean, acknowledge, and make straight. Now, note that the first three are imperatives with commands directed toward the child of God, and therefore they are our responsibility. Trust, do not lean, acknowledge. The fourth verb, make straight, is a simple promise from God declaring his part of the covenant. The structure of the three commands followed by the promise implies a cause and effect principle on which we can rely. Our part, the cause, yields a supernatural effect. Okay, so there you have it, uh, right? God's part, 
our part and God's part. Now, to begin, we see in each of the clauses, uh, the four clauses in these two verses, is the possessive pronoun, your. And it occurs in each, each one of these uh, clauses. These are very personal promises that you can embrace at any time or not. But that's up to you. The first and last phrases establish the primary idea of our study. I am to trust in the, my Lord with all my heart, without reservation, and in response, he will make my paths straight. The middle two phrases give deeper meaning to the depth of my trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust and lean are very close in meaning. Trust is a dramatically descriptive term. We're told that it's the idea of literally taking refuge in or to be secure and be, or be confident. Also, trust means to mentally and emotionally throw oneself behind something or someone, to put someone wholly at the mercy of another, casting all hopes for the present and the future on that person and to find provision and security there. In most Hebrew contexts, the word trusts, trust carries the idea of feeling safe and secure or feeling unconcerned. And this can be illustrated negatively in one of the few verses in the book of Proverbs that talks about trust. And this in a negative sense in Proverbs 11.28. He who trusts in or casts himself upon his riches will fall. But the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Now, what's the object of our trust? Well, our trust is in the Lord. Now, in your Bibles, you may see Lord is written in all capitals. L-O-R-D, each letter is capitalized. The English word Lord, and in your Bible, written in capital letters, not L, capital L, and then small O-R-D, that also occurs in your Bible. But the capital letters translate the sacred name for God, Yahweh. We had that in one of the songs this morning. I didn't design that. Uh, but uh, you'll notice that in Yahweh in the, in, in the Hebrew has no vowels. Therefore, it is difficult to pronounce. Y-H-W-H. How do you pronounce that? Well, I said Yahweh. You know why? Because vowels were added for, to facilitate pronunciation. To this day, Orthodox Jews consider this name so sacred that they will not even pronounce it. It is the title, it is the title given to uh, Israel's covenant-keeping God, the self-existing one, the supreme king of the universe, bound by himself to his people by love and promise. Yahweh 
is also translated in your Bibles, Jehovah. Now I've lost my place. The New Testament writers, recognizing the deity of God's precious son, applied the title Lord to Jesus. So we are to rely fully on him, finding in him alone our salvation, direction, and security in his sovereign care. Now, the term heart we see next in, in, the, in the first verse, fifth, fifth, fifth verse, the term heart here is not the physical organ in your chest. Rather, the word is instead used throughout the Old Testament to refer to our inner person, that part of us that constitutes the seat of our thought life, emotions, actions, and will and desires. So what is the Lord saying here? He is saying that we are to cast ourselves upon the sa our Savior God in complete trust for all things at all times never holding back in any area of our mind, our will, or our feeling. That, brothers and sisters, is quite an assignment. Then to trust in the Lord with all your heart brings a revolutionary dynamic to the process of making major, major decisions in our, in our life. Now think of any significant decisions that you must make in the near future. I've written, oh gee, several that might apply to you, but they're just kind of illustrations of what you might, might be uh, confronting in the immediate future. For example, what kind of life insurance do I need? Term or whole life? How much should I buy? Or do I want to go to grad school right after I graduate? Or for example, this job offer isn't what I expected, isn't what I hoped for, should I take it? With gasoline prices so high, is it smart for me to keep this old clunker? Hey, it's paid for. Something that my wife and I had to answer a while back. When should we retire? How can I give the needed care for my aged father or my infirmed son? Is this person, is this the person God wants me to marry? Can I be fulfilled in my singleness? Or how about, I can't afford seminary, but I believe it's God's will for me. As you consider the options ahead of you and weigh the usual factors, ask and answer this question. Which option requires greater trust in God's faithfulness? How does your answer affect your perspective on that matter? Now, as I have said, the next two phrases 
in these verses expand on the main idea to trust in the Lord. Trust with all your heart involves two approaches, one negative and one positive. The term understanding is so important that in the Hebrew text, it, it, it appears first in the sentence, or rather, your understanding. Do not lean on it. The word refers to our ability to observe something, gain insight, discern as the means of formulating a decision. Of course, due diligence is our responsibility. Investigate, seek perspectives, apply logic, and develop a plan. God doesn't ask us to forego planning or to throw ourselves blindly into decisions. He calls us to give greater priority to trusting in him for his leading. Prayerfully, again, I say prayerfully, trust in God's proven character, power, plans, and faithfulness as the basis for all your decision-making as you exercise sound judgment. I think that's important enough for me to repeat. Prayerfully trust in God's proven character, power, plans, and faithfulness as the basis for all your decision-making as you exercise sound judgment. Now, I'm going to come back to a little word that uh, I've avoided, I'm going to circle back to that little word, all. But I'm going to do that further on down. But here we are at a point where, in my preparation, I, I had to ask myself, I know this verse from childhood. And again, as I said earlier, I think I've stored it away in my hard disk up here for use when it comes needy. In studying this passage, though, I realize I need it every day. We have decisions to make every day. Don't go it alone. Here's a personal illustration. I love doing what I'm doing right now. Preaching, delivering the word of God, but the invitation to preach always comes with a good deal of stress. Ask my wife. Having chosen a topic and an outline drawn up, finding the right amount of support material presents a dilemma. For example, I might ask myself, now that illustration I gave, is, is it too long? Is it takes us away from the, the main idea? Are my thoughts just a repeat performance of what some other preacher has said before? Which reminds me of plagiarism. It's a struggle, okay, for your Spanish speakers. It's a struggle to be preciso, conciso, y macizo. What does that mean? Preciso? To be precise. It's a struggle to be precise, concise. Maciso doesn't translate. That's 
solid. Precise, concise, and solid in, your, in my preaching, your preaching, anybody's preaching. And then getting it all organized usually goes down to the wire, and the delivery time is usually the victim, along with the congregation. Then there is the Spanish translation. I do it in English. I think in English. All my reference material is in English. How do I get it to the next crowd that's coming in at 11 o'clock? Well, my wife, or this time, Otto, OJ. And he did it in about an hour. Well, anyway, such is the case in today's message. My mind was becoming too occupied with gathering enough supporting material and not what the text was saying to me. One idea would lead to another, and soon I thought, oh, no, I can never present all this in the allotted time. So last night, God and I had a conversation as I was laying in bed, and I told God that I needed his help. He said, well, what are you preaching on? I replied, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So then he tapped me on my forehead and said, well, Bill, are you doing that? Are you trusting in me? Are you not leaning on someone else's work as though it were your own? Knowing about me, but not acknowledging me in all your life processes? Do that, then stand back and let me work. As I have said, trust and lean have very similar meanings. But in verse 5, the second part, part B, puts lean in a negative application. Not To not lean on your own understanding means that you will not give first priority to your limited perspective or wisdom. Or in my case, my collection of other people's wisdoms or commentaries. To lean, then, has a figurative meaning to depend upon upon something, not just to recline against something, but to rely on it totally for support. The point is to feel completely confident in God and not to depend on your own or others' intelligence, experience, or skill, and to keep yourself from falling. Now, let's do an, uh, 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 an experiment in application. I'm going to give you a situation that you're going to have to answer for yourself. Try working out a major problem that you have coming down the road using only your limited viewpoint. You have no previous experience in that area, and the uncertainty of unexpected outcomes, unanticipated costs and burdens, etc., Taking everything into account, make note of the knowledge and the resources and the skill needed to make 
a fully informed decision to deal with that situation. Now, what percentage of this knowledge or expertise do you currently possess? How will you make up for what you lack? When you hit a dead end, well then let me suggest that you go back and try another man-made direction. And eventually, you will run out of ideas and energy. Then, if you don't trust in God, you will only have one result, one option left. Insecurity and worry. Now, here we get to the key of this passage, and that's the knowledge of God. Now, we will look at, a, uh, at the positive of two supporting commands. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Okay, here we come back to that little word that I mentioned earlier, the word all. This is the second time it appears in these two verses, with all your heart and in all your ways. Curiously, the word all means all. Is that a surprise? Curiously, all means all. It mean, admits no exceptions. So it applies to every one of your endeavors, work, civic responsibilities, family, budget, leisure, relationships, even your devotional life, and more. Acknowledge comes from the simple Hebrew term meaning to know. But it's more than knowing facts about God. This kind of knowledge is personal and experiential. To take the Lord into account in every decision that is made, even the smallest, most trivial, because if you're not practiced in those areas, how are you going to handle the hard decisions? How are you going to know how to, how to, to get along? Acknowledging him includes obeying his moral will as it has been revealed. In fact, Bible writers use this term as a euphemism for the most intimate of relationships between a husband and wife. And God's knowledge of us, of his creatures, is absolutely complete. And he wants us to know him just as intimately. Rather than leaning on crutches of our own insights or skills, we are called to wholeheartedly pursue knowing God's mind, his character, his values, his attributes, and his plans. Before uh, Carlos wrote me and asked uh, me to consider a passage in Proverbs to preach on, I was reading this book by a friend of mine. You can't see it here. It's, the title is, How Great Thou Art, taken from that great hymn. And it's written by a friend of mine a long, from long ago, Richard or Dick Fenner. Dick Fenner 
has since moved from where I knew him originally in Houston, and now he lives south of town and attends and is a deacon at Southwood. But this is a, a book, actually it's a letter to his adult grandchildren about the things that he's learned in ministry. For he worked for Campus Crusade for Christ for 10 years and then uh, left that and went into business on his own. But he was an elder at our church in Houston and then is now a deacon at Southwood. The things that he has learned that he wants to pass on to his grandchildren are written in this book. Well, could you write something that's 320 pages long? I think I might come up with three pages if it was me writing this book. He writes about the attributes of God. And he writes in such a way that after he is through dealing with the greatness of this attribute, which cannot be taken independently of all the other attributes, but then as he takes that attribute and he's developed it thoroughly, he says, what does this mean to you? What do you do with this information? This attribute should inspire confidence in the God who loves us and cares for us, and has a purpose for us. Let me quote from the book, which is available now on Amazon. Any study of the attributes of God will reveal the Lord as unlike any other person with whom we could have a relationship. He will be seen truly extraordinary. Someone whom we should have complete confidence. Since God defines love, we can be assured that he moves himself to be totally caring toward us. Because he portrays all goodness, we can count on his faithfulness never to be less than perfectly good. Since he describes himself, describes infinity, his devotion unfolds no limits. Since he possesses all power, he has the strength to maintain our intimate bond with him. Subsequently, he depicts all knowledge. Therefore, nothing surprises him or causes him to double-cross us. Subsequently, he, I'm sorry, because he contains all wisdom, he knows the importance his complete commitment to us means. And since he stands just, he looks at us forgiven. There exists no reason for him to be disloyal. So in the Hebrew word for ways, the Hebrew word is derek, kind of like the name of a male. And it means way obviously, or road. In the figurative sense, it refers to the choice we make and the experiences we have as we travel the road of life. God encourages us to know his mind in all those decisions and circumstances. Knowing God 
and doing things his way does not mean that we sacrifice our uniqueness or conform to a specific manner of living. We don't need to wear trendy clothes. We don't need to live like our neighbors, pursue only popular hobbies, or stay within the lines. Far from it. Discover who God made you to be and follow your unique path. Just don't neglect knowing God. Let me give you another illustration. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, unlike any other man before him or since, he made unusual life choices, remaining single, traveling constantly, putting himself in danger, devoting himself entirely to ministry, and took the, a path through life none other could ever walk. He accomplished more in 15 years than most people could achieve in a lifetime. In addition to evangelizing much of the Roman world at that time, he wrote more than one-third of the New Testament. We depend on Paul's writings for our maturity and walk in life. Yet nothing usurped his number one priority, knowing Christ. Let me read to you, and I think it'll be up on the screen, from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and fellowship of his sufferings being, <clears throat> being conformed into his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, now we have seen the first three uh, clauses of these two verses. And we come to the last part in, in verse 6, the, sec, the second part. We have looked at the three imperatives, all the four verbs found in uh, of, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And all of us, all are directed to us as responsible readers of God's wise counsel. Trust, do not lean, and acknowledge. We've seen that. Now, we, see, we will see that they form the condition needed to put in place the consequential promise from God. He will make our paths straight. Now, the last verb, make straight, is God's part of the plan to relieve the stress while accomplishing his will for our lives. The word picture reflects the ancient and even modern practice of design, designing and construction, constructing highways. Obstacles must be cleared. 
Cut and fill. If you're an engineer, you know what that means. It means you cut down the high places and you use that soil to fill in the low places. Dangerous declines must be filled and hills must be leveled. And bridges must be built and tight curves on a mountainside must be excavated to be straightened out. The promise here is more than just a proverb. As we saw last week, this is a book of proverbs, not promises necessarily. But when a proverb is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture, you can claim that that, you can be sure that that is a promise. And such is the case here. It is supported by Scripture. And it means that God will make the course of such a person's life truly successful in God's eyes. It does not, however, guarantee that no one will never make mistakes. Figuratively, the idea is to facilitate the process or to plan, turn plans into reality. So as we trust God and deepen our personal experience and knowledge of him, he will facilitate our travels through life and help us navigate the path that he has laid out for us. Now, you'll probably be happy to know that I'm near the end of my sermon. And so let's look at some applications. So let's put this all together. First application I see is we begin to feel disoriented and insecure when our insights and skills reach their limitations. In what area of life do you feel least competent? How can a deeper understanding of God, his character, his values, his promises, help you feel, as I said, unconcerned about the path ahead of you? Second application, remind yourself also that a pursuit of knowing God intimately can close the doors to a prideful, fleshly, wasted life, a wasted time, and a disorderly life. And lastly, you and I have not been left to secure our own future by our own understanding because God has set us on the path that will end our story in a way far more glorious than we could have imagined. Let me turn to a, a writing from the first epistle of, of Peter, where he says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, we live with the great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. What do we see in, the, in this verse? 
for having walked faithfully down the path that God has chosen for us, the straight path that he has prepared for us, we see it comes down to two guarantees, a living hope for an eternal inheritance. Who doesn't want that? Also, the promise of God's protection of our safe arrival to that place where we will receive that promised salvation. All praise to our Lord God, who has bound himself to us by love and this trustworthiness. Let's pray. Father, the truths in these two verses, while maybe from years and years and years of exposure to these truths become seemingly trite to us. But when put up against the trials of uncertainty that we face day to day, they certainly are a light to our path. an ever-present hope in times of discouragement. We thank you for your word, which enlightens us, encourages us, and directs us. And even in times when the evidence we see of your working seems dim, we know that we are placed there in order that we might trust wholeheartedly in your faithfulness, in your, in your attributes, who you are. So encourage us as we leave here to put these thoughts into practice, to go to, our, to the scriptures to find out who you are in each page, that you are trustworthy and that you love us you have made promises for our future. For that, we give you praise and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.